Well, it is my privilege to be here with you all this morning. Um, I don't want to leave that without saying something. You know, uh, I think the greatest issue that the church in every country of the world, in every city state that exists in the United States as well, the greatest issue that the church faces today is apathy. Um, and if you disagree with me, it might be because you don't recognize your own apathy. And, and I'm not saying that to try to prove my point. I'm merely saying that if we're not constantly seeking higher ground, we're dead. That's what, that's what happens. And so uh, on Father's Day, it's a challenge to try to speak to fathers without missing the rest of the group. That's not the intent. And so uh, I don't want you to think that today is speaking to fathers, nor is today a day for dad to turn off his brain so he doesn't have to think while everybody else gets preached to about fathers. So uh, I'm trying to engage everybody this morning. Uh, I really uh, want you uh, to hopefully leave ha with something to think about. Uh, hopefully you have something to think about. That's the goal. That's the goal, I think, of every service that you come to. is not that you come to a service, sit down. It's, uh, it's air-conditioned, so uh, it's a place of air-conditioning for an hour or two. Um, it's not, the goal is not to have come and, uh, and now everybody in your family knows that you came and you were good for an hour or two. Uh, the goal is to leave having moved yourself forward, having, God having moved you forward something, something to think about, something to mull over. And so that's my goal this morning. Uh, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I'll just explain a little bit about who I am, just so you have a little bit of a background. And uh, I'll explain a little bit more this evening. My name is Matt, my wife, Rebecca, and then we have five kids, Emily, Michael, Chelsea, Elijah, and Noah. And uh, Lydia is due next week. So uh, we shall see when she's actually going to be born. We don't know yet, but um, uh, the Lord knows. So uh, we will have three girls and three boys. And um, hopefully we wait for grandchildren from then on. So um, that's the goal. Uh, our oldest is 16. So they're 16, 14, uh, 12, 9, and uh, almost 6. Uh, so we are missionaries to Australia. Uh, we are focused on the bush, which is just a fancy way. It's the Australian way of saying uh, we, are, we are focused on the country, the more rural areas. Uh, the Australia, uh, like I said, I'll speak more to this tonight. The video will show you a little bit as well. So if, you're here, if you come back tonight, you'll see uh, a little bit more about Australia specifically. But Australia, the bush in Australia is very uh, similar to, uh, I say West Texas, but a lot of Texas outside of Dallas and Houston, I suppose. But... Um, or Oklahoma, it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of plains, there's a lot of cattle ranching, uh, a lot of sheep. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's not all that abnormal to the United States. There is a little bit of a desert uh, in the middle, but uh, Australia is um, a unique country in that it uh, has unique animals. It has some very unique people as well. Uh, maybe those unique animals create unique people, I don't know. So. Um, uh, it, it is a place that is known for, uh, for some reason, I, I, don't, I don't know what this is, I never really thought about it this way, uh, but when we started to go on deputation, we started telling people about Australia, and the first thing everybody wants to say is, you know, everything there kills you. And I, and I say, well, you know there's a lot of deadly things in this country too. 
Uh, it's, not the, it's not the only place on the planet that has deadly things. Uh, there are a few, that is for sure. There are, um, uh, there's a type of snake called a taipan, if you've ever looked that up. Uh, a taipan is, uh, there's, there's several different types of taipan. Um, in Australia, they have the inland taipan, the coastal taipan, and the eastern taipan. All of those uh, are three of the top five most deadly snakes in the world. So I guess that's maybe where it gets its thing. Uh, they say that the taipans uh, have, have enough venom um, in, one, in a single strike to kill up to 47 human adults with uh, the amount of venom they release. I actually saw a guy, a video of a guy uh, milking, is what they call it, they milk the snakes for their venom so they can create the antivenom. And the taipans milk that it came out, the venom that came out in the jar, looked like antifreeze. So if that doesn't tell you something, it's probably not really meant for your body. Um, so yeah, it does, doesn't do a lot of good things for you. You probably won't see, you see that in a uh, pill form anytime soon. Um, but uh, so Australia is a unique place, but uh, the Lord really put on our heart and, and connected us with some folks that were interested in, in preaching in, in church planting in the bush and uh, a ministry that really just has not been done at all in that country. So um, we're looking forward to what the Lord will do. We're working with a missionary that's a veteran, been there uh, since 05 and been uh, really involved in this ministry. So uh, we are just about finished with our deputation and we'll be headed to Australia. We're working on our visa process now. So if you are in Luke chapter 15 with me this morning, Luke chapter 15, this is a story. Um, we remember the, the, the parables. Jesus Christ told parables. And I think that this is the reason why he told them is because we remember them. <laughs> uh, you can go through and start picking out parables that you remember of Jesus. It's because the story related to something, right? It related to something it, it triggered something in your mind that connected it with something. That's the idea. Uh, so he, he gave us stories that connected to daily life. Unfortunately, I think as Christians today, we look at it as 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ told these stories. And so we try to put it in today's context, and it doesn't always make sense. And so because of that, we sort of just pass on by and, and totally lose the entire thing he was trying to get us to understand, whatever that might be. So I, I, it is my opinion that the historical context of, of everything you read in the, in the scriptures is absolutely important. Uh, you have to understand what he was trying to get you to understand at that time, what he was trying to get them to understand. So in that case, Luke chapter 15, we have three, three parables that are told about a lost item. First one was a lost sheep, the second one was a lost coin, and the third one was a lost son, right? And in these three parables, we see this idea of seeking after something that was lost, right? Jesus is trying, very clearly trying to get us to understand the idea that we ought to seek for something that is lost. And, but we also know, obviously, I, I would hope that we all know, that all three of these parables are not geared toward seeking items or people even, so much as seeking lost souls. This is what Jesus' main thrust of this entire chapter is, right? I, ho I hope that that's already understood. But keep in mind, in Luke chapter 15, in the verse 3 verses, we see some context that, that's given to us. It says in, 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 in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then drew near unto him, that's Jesus Christ, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
for those who have come and given to us the gospel message at some point, and, and for those who are saved today, that we know that we'll be in heaven one day because someone took the time and effort to come share with us. We thank you for that. We thank you uh, for the family members that even did. I, I know I am saved today because my dad shared with me the gospel. I thank you for a father who was willing to do that. Lord, we thank you for fathers today. We thank you uh, for those who support them. We thank you, uh, Lord, for all that you do in our, in our churches, in, in our families. Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to grow us to be better fathers, to be better uh, husbands, to be better families, Lord, uh, through your word. Lord, I pray that you would just be honored and glorified today. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So in this context here, we see, and I'm not going to get too much into it, uh, because I want to get to the, to, to the latter half of this, but the, the context here is that he's speaking to publicans and sinners. They're very broad terms. The term sinners is, is very broad. If you look at it in, the, um, in, in, in the, the basis of the Greek words, it's, it's very broad, just meaning very similar to what we would mean today. So I won't get into that too much. The term uh, publicans was a very unique term to that time. There were not many, many times in history where that particular entity existed. So in other words, we would put it in current context, we would say it's a tax collector. But it was very unique tax collector. It is not like it is today in the United States. So it would not be like an IRS agent necessarily. The way the Roman government had done this, they had, the Roman government had, had followed many other governments. If you, if you recall, back in the, in the, in the Old Testament, there were, there were a series of countries that came and took over this land that was called Israel, right? So it, those, those countries initially were was Assyria up in the north uh, and east uh, of Israel came down and took, took, took all of that land there. And then uh, from further east, uh, which is uh, southern Iraq today, uh, came from Baghdad, south of Baghdad, uh, came the, ba the Babylonians, right? They came along. And then from uh, modern-day Iran, the Persians came and the Medes, right? And they came, that's Darius and, uh, and Daniel's time, right? And they take over this whole land. But then from the other direction, we know Alexander the Great brought the Greeks over. And they, from the other direction, from Macedonia, and they came across and they did the same thing. And then from further west of them came Italy and, and Caesar, and he came and he swept through that entire land. And essentially all these men were doing was taking the known world at the time and essentially expanding it. And the Roman government by Jesus' time had expanded the known world, I guess you might say. In fact, all the way out to what is modern-day Britain. And, uh, and, and in that... Uh, Caesar had decided that he, has, as him and as part of his, his uh, republic, he had a, a group of senators, and they had decided that they were going to do things a little bit differently. Every one of those previous takeovers, you might say, those captivities, had forced all those nations to give them a, uh, what's called a tribute or a tax. We would call it a tax nowadays, right? That tribute would be given by the leader of that government. So if we had, say, say the United States, modern day, uh, we were taken over by another nation, and in this context, we were put to a tribute. Our leader that was left would be required to give the tribute to that, the leader of that nation, or to that, to that. So, the, so that he left a leader. If you remember in Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, took out the, 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 uh, the king of uh, Judah. He removed him and replaced him with his uncle, I believe it was. 
who was also of that same line, but he replaced him with someone who he believed was going to follow him. When he didn't, he removed him, took his eyes out, took him to Babylon, and replaced him with another man, right? He put his man in there that would follow him. And then that man was required to give him these taxes. By Jesus' time, the Roman government had said, we're not going to do that. We're, we're, we're not messing around with that. And they did kind of want these nations to sort of be autonomous while still being under the Roman government. So what they did was this. They would go to a place, and you might say, take the, take the city of Jerusalem. They would offer a tax, essentially, to that city. So a person could come along, in this case they were Jews, they could come along and they could go to the Roman government and they could say, I am offering to pay the tax for this city, Jerusalem. And in this particular case, that might be Matthew or Levi, the, the, the man that was sitting at, at the table of custom, that's what that was, when Jesus came along and called him to be one of his apostles. Uh, that might be Zacchaeus, right? These men would go and they would be given an area, essentially. They would pay that tax for, for a specific area to the Roman government. And then with that, they would be given essentially the authority to go collect that tax again from the people that were there. It was essentially a merchant tax. It was like a sales tax. So it was essentially on, uh, on, on, on merchandising. Anytime someone was selling something, uh, if you were a seller, you would be, the tax would be collected from you. So these guys' job was to collect that tax back. Not only was it their job, they'd already paid it to the Roman government. They're very motivated to get their money back, right? That's the entire goal. So these men's job was to collect the taxes. They would sit at a table. They would set up their little table, at, a, at, the most, at the busiest place where they could find the most, where the most merchandise was taking place, where the most people were coming through, and they would, they would, however you, whatever word you want to use, they would grab somebody and say, hey, you haven't paid your tax yet. And they would take their tax. Not only that, the Roman government would back them up on their collecting of that tax with Roman soldiers. So they had the authority, but not only that, they had the actual enforcement of it. And, and, and not only that, they were given the authority to collect whatever they saw fit. So in other words, a man like Zacchaeus, and we don't know a whole lot about these, but from what we understand, Zacchaeus had taken what he believed immediately, as soon as he understood who Christ was, he did, Jesus Christ never asked him to give back anything. You realize that? In that passage, Zacchaeus was never asked to give back anything. He offered it because he realized he had been wrong. He had taken more than was necessary. But a guy might say, look, I've got, some, I've got some extra bills this month. I need you to cover my, cover my bills. So I need more today from you than I took from the guy next door yesterday. And so it was a very uneven system, right? And, and, and it was basically a free-for-all. That far away from Rome, there was very little control. And the Roman soldiers were more than willing to, like, to just stick them in the prison if they didn't do it. And so, so these were very unliked people. They called them publicans, right? So here we have Jesus in Luke chapter 15 sitting at a table with a publican and with people called sinners, people who did not go to, to the synagogue or the, or the temple on, on the Sabbath, who did not even follow the laws like they should have, like the ceremonial laws and things like that. And here we have Jesus, the Holy Son of God, the one who is perfect, who did nothing wrong. Those men are trying to prove that he's not, right? That's their job. That's how the Pharisees see it. We want to prove this guy's not who he says he is. And so they, they set out to do that. And when they show up, 
He's sitting there eating with, with bad people. I, I, I don't suggest this, but here, here, here's the equivalent. The way, the, way the, church, the way the Pharisees viewed it then, the way the church would view it now, is if uh, you are sitting at a cafe, maybe having lunch with someone who's a known prostitute and your pastor walks by. Now, you might say, look, I'm just trying to share the gospel with her. But that's difficult to explain, <laughs> right? That's how they viewed things then. You know, the, the term sinner is used for Mary Magdalene, who had seven, de the Bible tells us that she had seven devils, seven demons in her, and Jesus removed those demons. She was considered to be a wicked person, and here Jesus was sitting to eat with her. How, how dare he? And Jesus explains himself by this. And he gives us three parables. This is where these three parables come from. He tells us about the first one, which is, which is a lost sheep. You know, he gave them a context they understood. He didn't just say, hey, have you ever thought about kangaroos? He could have. They hadn't. <laughs> they probably knew nothing about kangaroos. I don't know what the world knew about Australia at the time. He brought it into a context they understood. Israel knew sheep. Jewish people knew sheep. You go back through the entire Old Testament and everything is in the context of sheep, <laughs> right? I, I mean, they knew sheep. If there was one thing they knew, it was sheep. And Jesus says, wait a second. What if you, any of you, and he's talking to these men, knowing that they did own sheep. He wasn't talking, if he had said that to me, I would say, okay, I can kind of picture it, but I've never owned a sheep. So I, I don't really know, you know, what that's like. But he was talking to men who knew sheep. And he says, What man of you, in verse number four, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now he's not saying you would just leave them and wander away. They had sheep folds that they would put them in, and sometimes the shepherd would lay across it, or they'd put a branch across it, and the sheep wouldn't come out. Or sometimes they would hire a young shepherd boy who, who probably wasn't fit to, 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 to lead the sheep all the time, but he could sit there for a while while you went off and looked for that one sheep. In other words, that one sheep was important. That's the key here. That that one sheep was important. I, I ask you this. The day that you got saved, someone shared the gospel with you, maybe prior to that, maybe that day was the first day you'd ever even heard the gospel. Maybe that was the first time you'd heard about Jesus Christ. My dad said the day he got saved, someone shared the gospel with him as a pastor uh, of the church my mom had just begun attending. My mom had been saved a couple months prior. My dad said that he remembered that day at 29 years old was the first time he had ever heard the term Jesus Christ in the context of a person. He thought it was just a swear word. That's all he knew. And, and that day it changed him because he thought, whoa, wait a second, there's a person that actually cares about me? Uh, I mean, that, that changed him, right? And so he, he, here's the thing. If you think back to that day when someone shared the gospel with you, the day that you got saved, what if that person had said, you know what, that sheep is not worth my time. Boy, I, my dad shared the gospel with me when I was four years old. And uh, at four years old, I had been in church my all four years of my life already. That's all I knew. Uh, and, and, and I'd heard the gospel, but he shared with me about hell. My dad helped me to understand that the reality of hell, and that was a big factor to me. At four years old, 
I realized I did not want to go to hell. It's not some figurative place. It's not this idea that's opposite of God. It's, it's a real physical place of, of fire that the Bible tells us. No question, there's physical fire. It's a place of physical blackness, the darkness that you've never possibly understood. Not only that, it's a place of absence of God. So you, you say, well, sometimes I feel like I don't have God around. You don't have any clue what it's like to live without God. God lives every single day in the people around you, even if he doesn't live in you. And he is absolutely affecting every single thing you do. You have no idea what it is to live in a place without God's existence at all. Not only that, it's a place, Jesus Christ understood this at a moment that he said it is finished. Just before that, he made the statement, my, he, he, said, he asked the Father, why hast thou forsaken me? That was predicted earlier by, by David in Psalms. God had forsaken him. That was something that he had... How, how could it be possible that Jesus Christ, one with God, was separated from God himself? How is that even possible? And yet he experienced that. That reality of hell is, I think, very much downgraded in order to appease us. It's, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's where we are all destined if we don't change that. Right, and so, so I remember that day. I remember sitting on my dad's bed and him sharing that with me. And I remember asking Christ to save me. And you say, "Well, it was your dad. He kind of owed it to you." No, he didn't. He could have ignored it. How many dads have just not told their kids about God? I mean, probably most out there. Christian dads. Many Christian dads have not taken the time to purposefully share with their kids about Christ. I thank the Lord that, that he put it in my dad's heart to share clearly with me as a four-year-old. He didn't owe that to me. So in other words, Jesus Christ is saying that just like he cares, that shepherd cares about that one sheep, even among the 99, he cares about that one sheep. And the idea here is that he goes out, he says in the wilderness, but he's saying, look, he goes out and he says in here, he says in verse number four, until he find it. He doesn't say, well, he goes out and looks for a bit. Right? <laughs> no, he goes out. Uh, I'll put it in this context. I have a five-year-old son and um, I have to tell you if, you, if you have kids, if you have I think by the time we had three, we started to recognize this. The fourth one was very much this way, and number five is undoubtedly this way, that they get this kind of herd mentality. Uh, our youngest son has this strong propensity for being with the herd. <laughs> and I don't mean that rudely. I just he, He's constantly trying to stay with the crew. <laughs> and uh, he knows where the crew is at all times. We don't lose them. Uh, because he sticks with everybody. He's very much, uh, in fact, he gets upset when someone's not there. He, he, he's trying to figure out why someone's not there, and it, it's okay, they're, they're off somewhere else right now. Um, but I imagine this, he's five years old, and I imagine if I went to the store, and uh, we're walking around maybe, and we realize, we turn around, we realize Noah's missing. Well, what do you do? Well, you look in the immediate area first. Uh, you start looking in the most obvious places. If at some point you don't, within a few minutes probably, you don't 
realize where he is, maybe you go to the desk and you say, hey, can, can you call on the speaker and, uh, and I need to find my son, it's that important. I guess I would put it in this context. At what point do you decide we're just gonna have to forget him and, and adopt someone to replace him? How many souls have we just acted that way with? You know what? They didn't, they're the ones that ran off anyway, not my problem. I don't, even, I, don't, I don't have to care. Guess what, I'm going to heaven. Boy, in the end, will there be people that stand before God at the great white throne judgment and say, I knew that person and they never told me about God. I hope not. I think that there will be some for me. I spent 20 years in the army and during that time, I know that there were people that drove me nuts. <laughs> uh, you just get so frustrated with him and you say, you know what, that person can't possibly know God with the way that they're acting. But what did I do to, to help them understand that? Jesus goes on and he tells us about a lost coin. He says in verse number eight, either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. This, this context by, by most commentators, uh, there's this idea, Josephus writes, the, the, the Jewish historian, he writes this, to this effect that apparently at this time, it was a unique time in history, particularly with this specific item, uh, but that apparently when a, when a father would give his daughter away as, as a bride, one of the things he would do is he would give her this headpiece that was, had 10 pieces of silver around it. And I guess it was fairly common at this time. The idea was that uh, it was very common, not only first of all for uh, men to be significantly older and, and, die, and thus die first, uh, so a woman would find herself widowed, but it was also very common at that time for a man to divorce his wife for very little reason. But whatever the reason may be, the idea was that this piece had 10 pieces of silver and she could sell those pieces of silver to live off of if that were the case for some period of time. You could put it in the context, modern day context, I guess, of your IRA or your 401k. If you work your life to, to build up a retirement or a savings plan and you get there, and I, I know this happened to some in 2008 when the, when the economy crashed, uh, they had, uh, timing is everything, and if you were planning to retire shortly after that and it went down to a third of what it was, they said some people, their retirements went to a third of what they were within a period of days, uh, what do you do? <laughs> you're, there's no way to make that up. If, if you're already at retirement age, you can't, well, I guess I gotta work another 20 years. You, you may not be able to. So there's a sense of panic, right? So this woman finds a piece, one of her 10 pieces of silver lost, there's a sense of panic, I guess you might say. And not to be, not to put it in an inappropriate sense, but that's, I guess, what Jesus is trying to help us to understand, is that when I recognize someone who's a lost soul, who does not know Christ, who, know, who, who we know is going to hell and has no clue that Christ died to save them, do we have a, a sense of panic? How often have I come to a point where I realize I, I said nothing to them? They have no idea. 
there's, uh, there's a story told of a young man. His name was Christopher Searcy. He was uh, 15 years old in May of 1998. He was playing basketball with his friends in Chicago. And um, in, in the city of Chicago, I mean, and it's, it's worse today than it was then, uh, he did not realize that he was, uh, that the basketball court they were playing on would be the middle of two rival gangs who would begin shooting. And Christopher took a bullet to his aorta. Uh, several of his friends picked him up and carried him to within, what they said, 40 feet of the entrance to the, what was once the Ravenswood Hospital in Chicago. And one of his friends went inside the hospital and asked uh, the emergency room staff for help. The emergency staff uh, at the hospital there refused to help because they said hospital policy stated that they were not allowed to help anybody who was not on hospital property and he was technically on the sidewalk outside the hospital. The young man eventually found a police officer who, who, who helped him find a wheelchair and they wheeled Christopher in and uh, Christopher died on the operating table about an hour later. And at the time, President Clinton instituted some changes in, in terms of emergency care. But the fact is, how often have we viewed ourselves as a hospital? As a church, it's our goal to bring people in that they might know Christ. And we say, if they would just get on this property, I can share with them about Christ. I mean, pastor will probably preach a gospel message, and they'll come forward, and I'll share the gospel with them, and, 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 and then they'll be saved. But the fact is, they don't come in this building. They never get into the hospital. And you say, you say well, why don't they get in? It doesn't matter. That's on them. You know, uh, the Bible tells us in Ezekiel that God called Ezekiel the watchman. He said, it is your job to tell them that impending doom is coming. If they die, they'll die in their own iniquity. But if I told you to tell them and you didn't, it's on you. Their blood will be on your head. So are there people that God has called me to be the watchman for? And I've let them go without letting them know. The, uh, if you've ever researched, uh, I've only done a little bit, but they, they say crows, uh, crows are very unique. I, I don't like birds very much. Uh, they're kind of creepy to me. And so, uh, but crows are maybe even more so than, in, than most birds. Uh, birds are just there's, just, there's just something weird about them. The, they're just, I don't know, they're different animals. But crows are unique in that they, they tend to feed in groups, if, if you've ever noticed that. And apparently they're called a, crows, a, a group of crows is called a murder, which makes sense why I don't like them. Um, but, but in a group of crows, when they're feeding, what will happen is one crow will always be placed, usually higher, um, but away from the rest of the group while they're feeding. And that crow's job is the watchman. That's his job. And his job is to point out anything that might be danger to the group. If for some reason a crow dies because the watchman did not call out and some danger showed up, the rest of the crows will peck that crow to death. He dies because he did not do his job. Do I view my job that way? Lastly, and, I, and I'll be quick, the prodigal son. We, talk, we call it the prodigal son. He talks about, starting in verse number 11, the, the, what we refer to as the prodigal son. But I don't think this story is about the son. I think it's about the father. And I'm not the first to say this. Hopefully you've heard this before. 
But clearly the first two stories, the first two parables were the same. It was not about the, the sheep, it was about the shepherd who was looking for the sheep. It was not about the coin, it was about the woman looking for the coin. And in this case, it was not about the son, it was about the father looking for the son. But I find it interesting, and many have pointed this out, hopefully this is nothing new to you, but it's very fascinating that in this story, the son decides to leave the father. He calls and asks him for his inheritance. Many commentators argue that at that time, that would have been worthy of death. He could have gone to the city, uh, the men of the city, and they would have executed him for just for asking for that. It's unique because he's not even dead yet, so he had to do something to divide up what he owed, owned, the father, and give his son some portion of it, likely about a third of what he owned. And so he gives him something, some form of, of, of his uh, stuff, his estate, and the son eventually, it kind of, it kind of indicates here, it says, in, uh, it says uh, not many days after, in verse number 13, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. He likely wasn't carrying furniture, so he probably put it all into coins of some sort, right? Walks away with a bag of coins, I imagine, uh, or something similar. And so he walks away, and it says he, he says he took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So in this particular situation, he's got a really good situation. In fact, we, we see later on in the story that his father owns servants. Uh, he's, I mean, he's got plenty of money, it seems. And the son has a good situation here, but he didn't like it. Boy, I remember as a teenager, just getting to a point, I, I think it's maybe something that happens in teenage guys that you just kind of have to butt heads with your dad. I don't know what it is. But I just remember, you know, when you're younger, dad is just amazing. I mean, the dad can lift cars. I, I've never even had to see him do it. I just know he can. He's just amazing, right? And there's nothing he can't do. And then you start, you become a teenager. I have a 14-year-old son now who thinks that um, I can barely get out of bed on my own now. Um, and that's what happens. You, you become a teenager and all of a sudden dad is absolutely worthless. I can do anything that he can do better than he can. Um, I mean, he, he wakes up in the morning with the plan of how he's going to beat me at something. And it's just, that's just how life goes, I guess. Um, he just wants to be stronger. He wants to be taller and he's just about there. He, he's just, his goal is everything is, is comparing himself to me, which is not much. So it's, you know, he, he, th that's just where it gets. And I, I think you just get to a point where you realize dad's just dumb. You thought he was such a genius and now he's just so stupid. And now, once I became an adult, uh, my dad passed away when I was uh, 27. He passed away of, um, of bone cancer. And I, I have to say today, I wish I could go talk to him because I realized today how smart he actually was. He was actually closer to being as smart as I thought he was when I was a kid. <laughs> and significantly further away from what I, what I actually thought he was as a teenager. There was a middle ground there, but the point is this. My son thinks, he, he's now at the point where he thinks I'm a complete idiot, and that's okay, I understand. I, did, I thought the same thing about my dad. Uh, but my job is to still guide him even though he doesn't see things the same way I want him to see them. My, my job is still to be there as a dad, right? To still keep saying, look, no, no, this is the right thing. Even if you're not listening, even if you don't want to see it, 
to still be there, still doing this, still doing the same things, not falling into his 14-year-old trap of weird stories and trying to convince me of stuff. And I'm, hold on, I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to get angry. It's still my job to be the adult, right? And how many, how often do we just find ourselves acting like the 14-year-old? As a dad, it's my job to just do what I know is right and be the example. You know, I'll tell you what, we, we know this. The Bible says this all over. Human wisdom even says this. People follow your, your actions far more than they follow your words. It doesn't mean you don't say the right things. We, we, we memorize verses. We work on verse memorization every day, and, and we do that on purpose because it, he, he, all of my kids, they will not be able to get that out of their head. It's not possible. Trust me, it's not possible. You get them in their head when they're young and they can't get it out. That's what, that's what I want. So I, we still do the right things, but I have to also, I also have to show it with, with how I respond to things, right? As a dad, I, and, and we see at the end of this story with the prodigal son, we see him come back because why? He recognized dad wasn't as dumb as I thought he was. He wasn't as bad of a guy as I thought he was. He comes back, he says, wait a second, dad's servants live better than I do right now. He was actually a good, he wasn't a hard taskmaster. He was actually pretty smart. He recognized this. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes into our 20s before we recognize that about dad. But I challenge you this. If you're a dad, and I say this from a position of I'm trying to figure this out myself. But if you're a dad, just keep doing the right thing. You, you, you can't stop doing the right thing and fall into their four. 8, 10, 12, 14 year old trap, right? Just keep doing the right thing. Set that right example. And then if, if you're a mom, please, 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 you have so much, and you know this, you have so much power with your kids. I, it's unbelievable how much power my wife has with my kids. They absolutely, when things, even my 14 year old son, when things go wrong, he goes to her. You have so much influence, especially even as they get into the teenage years, don't use that influence wrongly. In other words, point them back to, lift him up. I, I know he makes mistakes, we all do. <laughs> My wife doesn't, doesn't point those out to the kids and give them more fodder, right? I, I appreciate that. I don't need someone else dragging me down too. Don't be the wife that's dragging him down along with them. Help him to be stronger. And then if you're a teenager or a kid, you don't have to understand. You don't have to know why he's asking you to do something. You just, it's just your job to do it. That's it. That's all there is to it. And you don't have to like it. I spent 20 years in the military doing things I didn't want to do. It is what it is. Move on with life. You will understand one day. You'll be the dad and you'll understand. So the challenge is this. Two, somewhat twofold, I guess you might say. On the one side, we just have to be the person that God's called us to be right now. If God's not called you to be a parent right now, then don't be one. Do what he's called you to be right now. And then on the other side, what he's called every single one of us to be is the one that's sharing that salt and light Amen. with those he's given me. You know, you might say, I'm 12 years old. 
he hasn't given me a lot, but he's given you something. You know people that are your age or not. My kids pray for my gra their great-grandparents because they're not saved today and very hard to the gospel. And yet, they pray for them. That's someone you can pray for. And they share the gospel with them in a way that great-grandparents allow them to get away with. They would not allow me to get away with. You have an opportunity if you're a teenager or a kid. Don't lose that opportunity. God's given you an opportunity at whatever stage you are in life.